You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. This is week 27 in our journey and study through the Gospel of St. Mark. If you haven't gotten a journal, a field journal, with the Gospel of Mark and some note-taking pages on the opposing pages. They're over on this bistro table in the back. They're free for you. Uh, Hop up real quick and grab one if you don't have one, and you can start journaling your way through the Gospel of Mark with us. That's a free gift for you. Grab a rubber band to keep it nice as you use it. Um, So I loved how Derek phrased the confession aspect of um, uh, uh, what confession is, and it's course-correcting course correcting, uh, turning us back to Jesus. And really, that's, that's my hope for us every Sunday, that our gatherings would serve our church family and friends and guests as a way of course correcting and turning our gaze, our attention back to Jesus. We're going we're gonna to get there through Mark chapter 6 and verse 53 together today. But I want to give us some context so that we kind of know, get comfortable where this is, because it's sort of a, a summary Um, paraphrase, a summary of a lot of what was going on, but it's also a specific occurrence of what was going on, uh, verses 53 to 56. And so I want to give us a a place to land and settle that we're going to be working from. So earlier, uh, Jesus and his disciples, you remember, they tried to slip off for some rest, and that didn't work. Everybody began to pursue them in spite of them getting in a boat and moving around, trying to get away from them. The excited crowd, they they follow Jesus and the disciples, And then Jesus heals them, he teaches them, he encourages them relentlessly. And it grows late in the day, everybody misses lunch and supper, they're hungry, so Jesus takes a meal for two, some fish and some bread, and feeds probably somewhere close to 20,000 people, because it was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And then he sends the disciples to get in a boat and to go ahead while he stays back and dismisses the crowd. In Mark 6, we learned that everybody ate and everyone was satisfied. It's a beautiful summary of the gospel, really. But they were talking about the food that they ate. Everybody was happy, satisfied. Jesus sends the disciples, y'all go ahead. I'm going to dismiss the crowd. He dismisses the crowd. Everybody goes home. The disciples are out in the water. Jesus then gets to where he was trying to get days before. He goes to a desolate place to pray and talk to his father alone. Well, during the middle of the night, remember his disciples are still out in the water. A big storm comes up. Jesus isn't with them. Um, Jesus is alone praying. So they, they, they're doing all they can to try to stay alive. And then in the middle of the night, Jesus comes to them in the middle of this storm, walking on the water. He gets in the boat with them, and then a great calm comes to the storm. And then something happens also that we all need to happen for us. The fears of the disciples were calm too. So he brought a great calm to the storm and to the storm. And then we come to our passage for today. So direct your attention to the text, Mark chapter 6 and verse 53. When they had crossed over the Sea of Galilee, they came to the land at Genesaret, and they moored to the shore. All right, I doubt anyone in this room has ever said the word moored in this way. Um, if you have, I'd like to hear the story. Um, but they, basically, it means to anchor down, to come into harbor, to, um, to tie to a dock. They, they just came ashore. Okay? And when they got out of the boat, the relentless people, they immediately, right away, they recognized Jesus. They recognized Jesus. They see him for who he is. 
and then they run about in a frantic. This phrase, run about, is almost hysterical. Like, it is nearly out of control. They're running anywhere and everywhere. The whole region, we're told, they cover this whole region, and they begin to, the word is carry, the word is carry there for the word bring. They begin to bring and carry the sick people on their beds, their pallets, their makeshift mattresses, their stretchers, their bed linens, their sheets. They're carrying these people to wherever Jesus was. They're carrying them because they can't carry themselves. They're going to them. They're finding those who need what Jesus has to give them, healing, for their needs, they're going to find people who need what it is that Jesus has. In verse 56, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, like farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, the business center, they, wherever it was the busiest spot, they would place these people there and implored, they begged and asked and urged Jesus that they might just touch even the fringe, the, the edge, the tassel of his garment, the edge of his clothing. And guess what? As many as touched it were made well. And that word means saved, healed, cured. They were healed, delivered. So these, these needy and sick people, they were brought out of the woodwork to be carried to Jesus. And Jesus continues to love on these people. When Jesus and the disciples, they hit the dock, they're met with this ever-growing, increasingly excited crowd of people, and they bring the sick to Jesus for healing. Their faith is sort of like the faith that we read about earlier in Mark of the woman who had the issue of, of her bleeding for 12 years. She knew that if she could just reach out and touch the fringe of his garment that she'd be healed, and she was. They believed that they too could just touch his garment. And I wonder, it doesn't say this in the text, but I wonder if these people had heard her testimony like, oh, you had this issue, what happened? Like, oh, I just touched his clothing and I was made well. I was healed instantly. I felt it and it's been true. And people are like, well, I want to go touch his garment. Like the power of her testimony, right? We don't know that for sure. But it's interesting that they're doing exactly perhaps what they saw this other person do and it worked, so they're doing it too. So Jesus hits the shore and he heals anybody. He heals everybody. And what happens, this serves as like a giant neon sign burning your retinas that says the Messiah has arrived. And it's Jesus. He's been sent by God. He's been sent from God. And he is God. And there is no other. There is no other way to the living God. And there's no other way to meet the living God and have peace with the living God, except through Jesus Christ. And this is the message of Christianity. This is the message of the Messiah, Christ Jesus, the Lord. There is no other way to peace with God. There is no other way to have your sins taken care of and the guilt removed than to look to Jesus, have faith in Jesus, trust him and believe him, follow him as your Lord and Savior. Now notice that people, they recognize Jesus and that that is what propels them on mission right? They just, they, they just had to go and they had to run with this urgency to find people who needed help from Jesus. You see, all throughout scripture, it tells us that Jesus came to heal our deepest wound. Like we said in our confession, our greatest need is not that of something physical or financial. Jesus came to deal with our deepest wound, 
to take care of our greatest need, to deal with our biggest problem, and that is sin. Sin is our great problem. You've got many burdens. You've got many struggles. You've got many issues. You've got so many things that you're fighting against, some more than others, but we're all fighting stuff. Nothing, nothing is, is a more significant, more difficult barrier and struggle and fight than that with sin. And it's in every one of us. And there's nothing we can do to fight it. It rolls us over so easily. It destroys us. It pounds us. It kicks us. It shreds us. It steals from us constantly and always. We are helpless and hopeless and powerless before sin. That is why Jesus Christ came to us to deal with sin that we could not deal with on our own. Anything else is looking to save ourselves, looking to Jesus, he saves us. He does what we can't do. This is the story of the gospel. And we see this echoed in places like um, Psalm 147.3, where he says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. We see this echoed in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 1 and 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of complete and full acceptance. Paul says there's no way that we can disagree on this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And scripture tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and the sick. He came for the sick, those who were sick with sin and were looking for a way to deal with it. Those who were under the burden of guilt, sin, and shame, and who did not know how on earth they could rid themselves of this. He came for those people. You remember back to the birth of Jesus, prior to the birth of Jesus, an angel appeared to his stepdad, Joseph, in a vision with this angel. And he was telling him about how he should not and must not leave Mary, that she didn't cheat on him, that, that the Holy Spirit of God has placed the Savior in her womb that he is to care for as a father and not to do away with Mary. And the angel says this in Matthew 121, she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save. He will save his people. He will save his people from their sins. This was the mission of Jesus Christ. And he, he clearly states it in Matthew 19.10, for the son of man, talking about himself, came to seek the lost. He came to save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. In fact, when asking Jesus one time about why he was hanging out with such notorious thugs and sinners and tax collectors, reprobates, people that are just like the, the scum of society, like, Jesus, why are you spending time with these religious renegades, people who, who do not like God? Why, why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you hanging out with these sorts of people? He says, to those who, are, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who think they're all right will never be saved. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, those who don't need a savior, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Luke 5 and 31. You see, when a person is saved, they recognize Jesus. They see him for who he is. They see him as the savior of their soul from sin, death, and hell. And when this happens in the heart of a person, 
When a person is regenerated and made alive by the power of God through his spirit, and they experience newness of life, like they're not a Christian, something happens, and they become a Christian. And they have eyes of faith. They have a heart that was stone that's now flesh. They begin to feel. They begin to understand the spirit. They begin to experience the truth and goodness of Jesus from scripture. They experience his presence and nearness. When this begins to happen, when a person is made a Christian, the natural reflex to being helped in this glorious way is to get other people to experience it too. It's to get other people to Jesus. When you've been impacted by Jesus, it's the natural reflex to get other people to Jesus so that they too can be helped and healed and saved by Jesus. Anytime we experience something, like a good deal on something, right? Um, anytime that we come across, we want to share it with others. Man, this is so discounted. Man, you're going to love these shoes. Like, you know, we, we share these things. We share these good news whenever we experience it. The same is true when a soul experiences saving grace, unmerited favor. When we experience the grace of God, the natural reflex is, man, my friends have to hear this. I've got to share this. But the problem for so many Christians often comes when, when they personally take their eyes off of Jesus. Ah, that's our problem. We forget as our eyes drift to other things, counterfeits, things that look shinier than Jesus, but it's counterfeits, things that promise us what Jesus can fully give us, and it can't, frauds, false saviors, phony Jesuses, Bait, we get tricked. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we forget what a wonderful savior he truly is. And we forget how much our friends and family and our coworkers need Jesus to save them from their sin, from their death, from their hell, back to God. We forget. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we forget how wonderful he is and how much other people need to experience him, how wonderful he is. I mean, the drama of life comes at us, the busyness of our lifestyles, the wars within, the conflicts around the world, the comforts of the world, the flesh, and the devil. All these work to cause a sort of gospel amnesia to set in our mind and hearts where we forget. This call to remember is at the heart of the Christian faith. You can find it even back in like Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, the land with great and good cities that you didn't build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you get there and you enjoy these things and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget. When God makes good on his promises and he takes care of you, take care 
lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When you become a Christian and you taste of grace and newness of life and you experience the fullness of the indwelling spirit and power of God and you begin to experience the power through reading him and pursuing him in scripture and in prayer and seeing him use you and your story and your testimony to impact others, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did he say that in Deuteronomy? Because you and I are prone to forget. We talk about things along the way. We talk about things in our house. We talk about, these, we talk about many things. How often we speak so little of the best news that changes everything. The job of the Christian is to remember the job of the Christian is to remember the gospel, to cherish it, to keep your eyes on Jesus while pointing others to Jesus. And often the problem for the Christian today is that we're looking and pointing at the same things that people who aren't Christians yet are pointing at. They're drawing their identity from these things, and we begin to draw our identity from them too. And we look so similar to those who haven't experienced grace, Yet there should be a difference in the life of the Christian, in their words, in their way, their reactions, their thoughts, how they carry themselves. There should be a distinction between someone who's alive and someone who's dead. Again, the job of the Christian is to keep their eyes on Jesus and then pointing others towards Jesus. Another problem that we face is that of abiding, unconfessed, undealt with sin. When there is abiding, unconfessed sin in the life of any Christian, when the Christian begins to make accommodations to live with sin instead of repenting and killing that sin, Christians begin to, to live more and more according to the sinful flesh of who they were before Christ rather than living in accord with the Spirit and in unity with the Spirit of God that is within them, and they begin to feel powerless. We all know what this feels like. If you've been a Christian for a week, you know what this feels like. You begin to live with this, well, who am I to tell anyone about Jesus sort of attitude? You're defeated. You begin to lose sight of the greatness of Jesus and his saving work to forgive you of the very thing that you're shouldering. You live powerless. It cuts you up from within. A man, indwelling, unconfessed sin will kill you. It destroys your confidence. It destroys your victory. It destroys the power that, that you have to speak the good news of the gospel and courageously confess sin, bring it with courage, with boldness to the throne of grace in your time of need that you might experience mercy and forgiveness. You begin to make accommodations and it sets in like it festers like bitterness Christian, you are not to hold on to your sin. You're to confess your sin. And when you have this indwelling sin, not only does it make you sour and miserable, it, it, you, you put off a cloudy, confusing picture of who Jesus is to others and his message. And occasionally you might, like around Easter, point people to Jesus 
through your words. But lifestyle and your way and your reactions and the way you handle social media, they work to guide your friends elsewhere. And I really want you to understand that the message today isn't y'all aren't perfect in this way, so you're terrible. Don't receive it this way. Though we are to pursue perfection and pursue holiness, and we're called by God in Scripture to imitate God, the message is, the call today is, when you're not perfect, turn your gaze back to the cross and walk in repentance. When you're not walking in accord with the Spirit of God, turn your gaze back to the cross, back to Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was slain for our sins, and walk in confession and repentance. When it is that you're drifting, not if, when you drift, turn your gaze back to the cross of Christ. Remember, repentance is turning to Jesus to find what we thought could be found elsewhere. Repentance, turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. So my, my heart for us, my, the Christians in the room, is a call to live Let's live lives of ongoing repentance, continually fighting daily, many times a day, turning our gaze back to the cross. Let's live in a way that it's easy for people to see Jesus through our words and our way of living. Let's not make accommodations or arrangements with our sin. Let's slay it by confessing it, by repenting of it, by bringing it into the light, running towards Jesus away from that sin that is bait, that's tricking us. It's stealing your joy. It's stealing your power. It's robbing you of the confidence that you need as you take the light into the darkness. Do away with lives of compromise and hypocrisy. I mean, today, just a line in the sand sort of moment. Decide to be finished with trying to live one foot in the world and one foot pointing towards Jesus. And live a life that's full of the power of God and following his spirit, leaning on his strength that he will provide as you, by faith, walk in humble, dependent obedience before God and in front of other people. That's the best way of living life. It is miserable. The most miserable person on planet earth is the Christian who's trying to live the life of a non-Christian. Completely miserable. There is not anyone on the planet more dissatisfied than a Christian living contrary to holiness and obedience. It is awful personal testimony, I can tell you, it is, it's exhausting. It's miserable. It is much more fulfilling and fun to be done with those youthful sins that we just love to keep in our pocket. And like Paul told Timothy to flee those youthful lusts, those things that have been with you for so long, since you were a kid, away with those things. Approach mature womanhood and manhood. Be done with these sorts of childlike things. You're continuing to get tricked like a little kid and you're wearing your soul out. Be done with these things. Live towards the Lord in holiness. I mean, this is the, the fundamental core and center of Christianity. You see it in Mark chapter 12 and verse 29. Jesus was asked, what is the most important rule of life? What is the, the top commandment that anybody can live by? And Jesus said, the most important is, and hear my people, is what he would say. Hear, O Israel, hear my people. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Sounds like Deuteronomy. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
This is the call of Christianity, loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Because God put forth Christ to pursue us, loving us with everything that he had, even to the point of death. And we live like this in response to what he has so graciously and generously done for us already. So Christian friend, live for Jesus, all in, completely. Bring others to Jesus and he will change them too. And no matter who they are, no matter if they're from quiet villages or big cities or farmlands, so long as they see Jesus and reach out for him, they're going to be changed. Notice in the text, it didn't say that as many who were argued with and debated with those who touched Jesus were healed. Notice it doesn't say that those who were convinced to vote a certain way were healed. Notice that it didn't say those who who boycotted and canceled the right things were healed. It says whoever got to Jesus and touched him, they were healed. Done. So then, if this is true, our challenge isn't getting people to believe our conspiracy theories about politics, election, pandemic, fuel prices, and race. That's not what is going to help our family, friends, and coworkers in cities, villages, and towns. And so many well-intentioned people are going at this. They're, they're, they're shoving so much at people. These conspiracy theories, these divisive ways of thinking about life, we talk about them when we rise, we talk about them when we go to bed, we talk to them as we're on the way, we talk about them when our house, and we talk so little about Jesus. The true challenge is to get other people to see Jesus. Put your energy there. You know, knowing this, knowing that if we get our friends to Jesus, that he can change them, knowing this, why is it that we don't spend time and words doing this, getting people to Jesus? Perhaps it's because we Christians, we've left the the freshness and the simplicity and the childlike faith of the gospel back there somewhere. And, and we've started trying to change people our way according to our desire for control based on our fears and preferences, trying to get them to see things our way in our time, all the while not getting them to Jesus and not having him deal with them. We take matters into our own hands. And what happens is we well-intentioned, zealous people, we focus on their hands, if you will, and their heads, their way of thinking, their actions, their way of life, their choices, their lifestyle, rather than focusing on the heart, which only God can change. And as we put a lot of effort and words and conversation into these things, we end up hardening their hearts to Jesus. We often do so much more harm than good. Family, it's more important to get your friends and family to Jesus and let him deal with their stuff and you love them, you love on them, and talk more about who Jesus is than spending so much time talking about who they're not and how foolish their choices are. Talk to them about Jesus. I mean, one of these methods leads to guilt and shame. The other, soul transformation from deep within. One leads leads to heart change, and then slowly... It plays out in their actions later on. 
And the other focuses on changing their actions first. Be right, be moral, be my way, regardless of their heart ever changing. I often wonder if Christians would spend much time at all talking about morality, if people just behaved right all the time, would they still talk about Jesus? Or do we, is it really about Jesus? Or just want people to live the way that we think they should live? Are we focused so much on what people do and their choices today and not where they're going to spend eternity? Friend, our main job as Christians, for those who are Christians in the room, you pray, you point to Jesus, you, you pray, you look to Jesus, and you point to Jesus. You pray, you look to Jesus, you point to Jesus. The hope of Nashville and our country and the world is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Always has been, always and forever will be. Nashville needs more than nice people. Nashville needs more, Nashville needs more than Christian people being good neighbors. Nashville needs more than Christian people spreading kindness and love. Nashville needs more Christians. Nashville needs its current Christians to lean into and activate their God-mandated mission, their duty and their calling of being light in the darkness. And being light in the darkness is more than being nice. Being light in the darkness is more than being kind. Being a light in the darkness is more than being a Christian referee who's throwing yellow flags every time somebody does something sinful. Being light in the darkness is living your life on mission at the expense of others while you're telling them about the goodness of Jesus Christ. Remember, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's not heaping guilt and shame for people's actions that leads them to repentance. It's telling them about the one who suffered in their place for their sin so they could be forgiven of their sin and never have to worry about guilt or shame ever again. The one who was destroyed on the cross so they could be united back to their creator. You tell them about how wonderful Jesus is. That's the hope of Nashville. And again, this message isn't to be received as guilt and it's not shared as guilt to motivate you. Guilt can motivate you to do a lot. Shame can motivate you to do a lot. And often we personally use guilt and shame for our own psyche to get us to do things. How much more easy is it for a pastor in front of a people to leverage guilt and shame to get them to behave a certain way? I can, and it'll last for a day, but it won't change your heart. Guilt and shame never does. Today's message is a plea to me and to you, to us both. We must be missionaries in Nashville, Tennessee. This is why we're here. We're not here to merely teach people who show up on Sundays. We're not merely here to develop lifelong friendships and access communities. We're not here merely to open a coffee shop in our lobby and open our doors during the week for co-working. We're not here to give out merely these bus passes and sing songs on Sundays. We're here to be missionaries, where we're living strategic lives on mission, telling other people about Jesus and God's love for them and praying for the Holy Spirit to save them. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Go preach the gospel to a tree, to a dog, a goat, a donkey. Go preach the gospel to the whole of creation, to every person. 
Go tell them about Jesus. We're here to make every, every trip to the store matter. We're here to make every visit to the car wash or gym count for eternity. We're here to capitalize on our friendships that we develop at the park to make an impact in eternity to where every trip to the kid's school counts for the gospel's sake so that those who are far from God can become his children through faith in Jesus Christ as they see Jesus for who he is through our words and through our actions. I want to finish with two stories real quick. And some, man, this thing gets so stuck. I feel like I'm in a straight jacket. I've been in one. I was five. I was a rebellious kid. No, I, I broke my, uh, fell off the top bunk. Before they had a railing, you had to be tough growing up. They have railings now. Soft kids. <laughs> Rolled off, hit the little end table with the lamp, the chin on my way down, five stitches. I was screaming my head off. I remember it. Man, whew, that was a rough night. Um, anyway, <laughs> three hours sleep. All right, here we go. Two, that's three stories. All right, this first one. That one doesn't matter. Two stories. And some of y'all who've been around long enough, you've heard this story before. There was an elderly, elderly lady named Mary Echelmeyer, 70-year-old widow. She lived in Miami, Florida back in late 60s, early 70s, in the Halea neighborhood of Miami. She was burdened for all the teens that were consumed with what was so popular of this era of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, and gang culture so prevalent there in Miami. So with the blessing of her small independent church there in Halea, Florida, she began a Bible study to reach teenagers for, of her city. And there was nothing fancy about this 70-year-old lady's Bible study. There was a Bible, and they studied it. Um, an 18-year-old boy named Chris Johnson, real person, was invited by Mary right off her sidewalk to a meal and a Bible study. Chris Johnson became a Christian. He got saved, radically changed by Jesus. This teenager, Chris, this elderly Mary, they begin to invite others to attend this Bible study to hear about Jesus Christ in Scripture. Story two. In this story, we meet 17-year-old Italian refugee, Gary Michael Cuccio, living in Halea, Florida. He was a part of the notorious Sharks street gang, and he loved football. According to Gary, he said back then, football was everything for the youth of Florida. Probably still is, especially Miami. Gary was a rough football player. He was a rough young man. His high school football coach found it very difficult to edit his highlight reel to send to colleges because of how brutal he was. It was more of a deterrent for recruitment than of benefit. Rumor was that he would insert pieces of razor blades into his arm cast and his pads to slice his opponents so that they would not be able to continue playing. Now here's where our stories collide. <clears throat> Cuccio was invited to Miss Echelmeyer's Bible study by Chris Johnson. In May of 1971, during one of Mary's Bible studies, Gary Cuccio became a Christian. In the fall of that same year, 1971, he ended up getting a full-ride scholarship to play football at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. If you're a Michigan fan, you're familiar with Appalachian State University. 
Shortly after getting on campus, Gary did what Mary did. He started a Bible study in his dorm. It's there that Clint Petty from Virginia and Tommy Harris from Georgia, both football players, they get saved in Gary's dorm through the Bible study. These three begin to invite others to their dorm for their Bible study. During practice in fall of 1971, linebacker Gary and an offensive tackle, George from North Carolina, they collide. George nearly loses his eye, has to have seven stitches on his eye. He fractures his sternum in this hit, and George knew Gary well. George knew about the Bible study. He knew that Gary was always talking about Jesus. He'd noticed that Gary read his Bible every second he had the chance, even in the locker room. He said that he found it difficult to believe that Gary passed any classes because he was either on the football field, reading his Bible, or talking to somebody about Jesus. Well, later that day, after this hit on the football field during inter-squad, Gary goes and visits George in the hospital, and he apologizes for the injuries. He feels terrible about it because he's trying to clean up his reputation because he's a different person. In the hospital, very brief dialogue at first, Gary was about to leave, and he asked George a few questions. The first question he asked George was, are you a Christian? It's a great question to ask somebody. George said, yeah, yeah, I am. Gary said, well, have you ever really gotten to know Jesus? George said, yeah, I guess. Gary said, have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit? And George said, well, sort of. And Gary said, well, have you ever been filled with the Holy Spirit? George said, uh, I don't guess so. Then Gary said, can I share some Bible scriptures with you? George, laying on his bed, said, sure. It's there that very evening that George began to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Later that fall, he becomes a Christian and is baptized. He shares how Jesus loves the world, how, every, how anybody can be saved. He shares this all over campus in Boone, North Carolina. He starts street preaching and handing out tracts, riding the wave of the Jesus movement. He begins to date a girl. Within a few weeks, she gets radically saved. George and his girlfriend, they end up getting married. They graduated. They head off to seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. They've since raised three kids, and for more than 50 years, they've given themselves to pastoring and sharing Jesus with tens of thousands of people around the world. Personally, I heard about Jesus through the teachings and influence of George and his wife, Nedra, because they're my parents, and I love telling this story. And by the way, it was just about six years ago through diligent research and the gift of the internet, that I was able to help reconnect Gary and my dad after 40 years of never seeing each other. And they both met at a restaurant, not knowing the other was going to be there. It was magical. The whole restaurant clapped. I was crying. It was awesome. They were hugging, touching each other's faces, kissing each other on the cheek. It's like just instant locker room brotherhood after 40 years. And guess what? they had been living 25 minutes from each other. It's amazing. You know, I'm here today asking you, charging you to keep your gaze on Jesus. In a large part, because back in 1970, there was an old lady 
who started making disciples. Church family, make disciples. Follow Jesus. Let's see Nashville, Tennessee changed. You know, when we get to heaven, we all want to meet certain people. We think about that kind of stuff. You might want to meet Charles Spurgeon or Simon Peter or Noah. I don't know who it is that you want to meet. I want to be hanging out with my papa, and I want to ask Jesus, can you introduce me to Mary Meckleheimer? You know, if God can do something to that 70-year-old woman with a Bible and a living room, if God can use an insecure 17-year-old punk named Chris, an 18-year-old gang member named Gary, a college football player named Bubba, a dad trying to figure it out, church planner named Jeremy who has deep insecurities, then he can use you. He can use you in incredible ways. Remember, all we have to do is focus on Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Don't lose the treasure that Jesus is. And be reminded that your friends and family need Jesus. Pray for for more belief in the reality of eternal separation of God. Pray for that reality to be ever-present so that as you look at your friends and family, you can't save them from hell, but you can pray for them, and you can point to the one who can. Share Jesus with them. Pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Don't allow the drama of life and the busyness of your schedule and the comforts of life distract you from the founder and perfecter of your faith. You pray. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You pray. You point others to Jesus, and you pray. And you confess your sin. Do not make accommodations with your sin. Don't make plans to return back to that sin. Don't play with it. It's like fire. It will burn you. It will kill you. Run, be done with those sins, confess them, walk in the light, repent of them, turn to Jesus, find forgiveness and fullness, and find what it is in him that that foolish sin was promising you that it can never deliver you. You're in a fog, you're in a funk, you got to get out of it, and you do so by looking towards the cross. Don't be tricked. Stop making accommodations and agreements with your sin. Be finished with it. You must do this. This is the Christian life. Live this life of ongoing repentance, confessing your sins to God through Jesus. And 1 John 1, 9 says, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So pray, confess, and repent. Even now, as we press into the Lord's table, as we do so through remembering in communion, I encourage you, friend, to do business with God. Typically, as soon as I pray, we come up. And some can. Some are completely welcome. No judgment for those who are eager to come take communion. Please do. But there's some who need to sit and pray and confess and do work with Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart to teach you to stop, stop playing games and strategizing around how can I sin, how close to sin can I be without being in sin. Stop it. Quit it. Run to Jesus today. That's your focus. Run towards him. And then, after you've done this business with God, run up and grab communion. Because this is where forgiveness is found. This is where forgiveness is found. Let me pray for our time, asking the Holy Spirit to change our hearts during this moment as we remember the finished work of Jesus. 
Father, would you add your blessing to this time of confession, of repentance, Lord, of prayer. Lord, would you be on this time of remembering, remembering what it is that you've done for us and who it is that you are. Lord, allow our eyes to recognize you once more for who you are and how you can help our friends and how you can help us. Lord, help us not be tricked. Help us. Hold us fast. Guide us. As we remember your finished work now. Thank you for what you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, friends and family, we're going to have servers on either side of the stage. We're going to have a self-serve station in the back. I invite you to freely come and take of this, especially if you feel like you don't deserve it. Do business with God. Pray, repent, confess, and come. Take, dip, and taste of where your hope and your healing and where your power is found through the finished work of Jesus. You can come when you're ready, my friends. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.